and welcome to this episode of the Art and Design of Sci-Fi and Fantasy, Mystery and Horror. Today I speak with Joe Packer, who has co-authored a book on pessimism, how it's expressed in uh, different uh, types of media, and uh, they use specific examples from uh, from fiction, video game, animated television show, and uh, a live-action television show. All right, thank you, and enjoy. I'm speaking with Joe Packer, co-author of A Feeling of Wrongness, Pessimistic Rhetoric on the Fringes of Popular Culture. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you. So first, tell me, how did you get into uh, studying and writing uh, a book on this subject? Yeah, so, you know, um, my co-author is a good friend of mine, and we go back to our days in grad school, and we were having a conversation um about pessimism, and he remarked that there were a lot of pessimistic themes that kind of run through the work of Lovecraft and other authors of weird fiction, and, you know, I was really interested in in pessimism, and he had more of a background in kind of the weird fiction, and so we just thought, well, maybe this is a, a project that we could work on together. And we published an article on that, and then we talked about, well, maybe these kind of themes of pessimism run throughout other popular culture, and that was kind of the genesis of the book. Mm-hmm. So are you into the, uh, oh, we'll get to the book, but are you into the pop culture stuff that the book uh, uses as examples? Are you a pop culture person? Yeah, I mean, all of the examples in the book are things that one or both of us is really familiar with. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. Well, tell me about the book then. Sure. So the book, I mean, I guess um, I should start with what is pessimism. So mm-hmm. pessimism in the sense that we're looking at it is uh, philosophical pessimism. And so in colloquial usage, a pessimist may be someone who has like a you know, I don't think things are going to work out or the glass is half empty. <clears throat> but the pessimist that we're looking at has a very specific meaning. And the meaning is people who argue that um, it would be better if humans didn't exist. You know, things are so bad that we would be better off not being here. Hmm. And that's not a tremendous number of people, but it's been kind of a philosophical undercurrent for a long time. Um, and so there are, you know, people who pop up every now and again who make this argument, like um, Schopenhauer is a famous philosopher who makes this argument, and, um, you know, more recently, uh, Thomas Ligotti, who is an author of weird fiction, kind of in the vein of H.P. Um, Lovecraft, he wrote a non-fiction book kind of making the case for philosophical pessimism so we in the book we make the argument that philosophical pessimism is just so far from mainstream thought you know most people are just sort of like that's kind of weird and we're not really interested in it and so these pessimists they have that's a hurdle they have to climb if they want to persuade people that, you know, you're better off not existing. Mm. But an additional hurdle they have to climb is that 
the tools that they would use to persuade people are in fact not consistent with their ideas. They're not consistent with philosophical pessimism. And what I mean by that is that if you think that rational argumentation can persuade someone, then why can't we use rational argumentation to make the world a better place? You know, why can't we persuade other people to make changes, to fix problems? And so to utilize argumentation and rhetoric and persuasion, these are things that are, by the very act of using them effectively, suggest that you're wrong, you know? Hmm. That uh, we don't, the world isn't kind of irredeemably bad. And so we thought, well, how, how can you kind of make a case for pessimism in a pessimistic way, rather than make a case for pessimism using the tools of optimism? Hmm. And we, that was kind of what we were thinking about. And, you know, these stories of H.V. Lovecraft are one way we argue that you can do that. Because, you know, pessimistic themes are throughout them, right? Humans aren't particularly important. We live in an indifferent universe. Um, we could just be kind of wiped out by some elder god at any time. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter, right? And so, you know, so H.P. Lovecraft is sort of has all of these pessimistic themes and he's presenting them in a pessimistic way, we argue. This weird fiction that's sort of unnerving and, you know, it's short, and you're not really sure what's true or false or what's going on. Um, these are all sort of, um, you know, it's a pessimistic way of communication. Mm-hmm. Now, how do you pull in, I see uh, from the, the book blurb that you pull in True Detective, the show True Detective, uh, Rick and Morty, and Final Fantasy VII, um, along with uh, Lovecraft and, and others. How did you choose to pull all those together right so I mean we were looking for media that had pessimistic ideas Mm -hmm. um, but also had a pessimistic form to it Um, and so if you watch a lot of Rick and Morty you'll kind of notice that pessimistic themes that life is not all that great Mm -hmm. pop up frequently so there's kind of a tradition of people creating you know, giving birth to other sentient life and that sentient life sort of regretting being born. That maybe the most famous example is this little robot whose job it is to pass the butter. And when <laughs> um, its creator tells him that, he's just like, you know, why? <laughs> like, that's awful, right? And so those kind of themes pop up a lot, right? And we argue that, you know, it's not, again, not just enough to effectively persuade um in relation to pessimism, to say pessimistic things, you also have to have a form or a pessimistic strategy. And we argue that the pessimistic strategy in Rick and Morty is that it combines the uh, theatrical genres of comedy and tragedy in a way that is uniquely pessimistic. So certainly there are dark comedies, um, which, but we argue that this is sort of like a comedic tragedy and the way that it intersperses comedy and tragedy is we argue uh, a pessimistic form to go along with the pessimistic content 
and, and so each chapter is, you know, united by their themes of how do, how it, can this media present pessimistic ideas in a pessimistic way, but each media we look at is doing so in a different way. So did you pur- purposefully pick um, one, a best example from uh, each type of media you could think of, you know, like, I guess television, but then you also have animated television, then video game, and then uh, novel, you know, prose, right, fiction writing. Yeah, that is something that we talked about, um, that we talked about together. And, you know, if we if we had another chapter, it would probably be music. Um, that was an area that my co-author, Ethan, was really pushing for. And, you know, we had just, re- we, we felt like we had enough ready for the book. But, mm-hmm. I, I, yes, that is something that we took into consideration. Mm-hmm. Now, how did you pick Final Fantasy VII? I know, I know, sort of the bare outline of the story. I haven't played it, but um, how did you pick that one? Yeah, so Final Fantasy VII, um, we're focused on one particular part, and so it's like I don't know a twenty-year-old spoiler alert, <laughs> uh-huh. but a uh, character. You know, it's a it's a role-playing Japanese role-playing game, mm-hmm. kind of the one that really popularized the genre in the United States. And there's a character that joins your party, um, and you're sort of like playing with, and you kind of like get her background, and she kind of dies unexpectedly. And um, it was it's like one of the, I don't know, rated one of the most shocking or the most shocking video game moments, and because um, a lot of people were deeply attached to that character. Mm-hmm. And so what we talk about is, you know, obviously. Um, there's been a lot of deaths of important characters in video games and, and movies and TV and so on. Mm-hmm. But we talk about the way that um, basically rumors swirled for a very long time that you could play the game without this character dying and how that sort of kind of um, makes the media pessimistic because it's sort of like a continuous dashing of hope <laughs> in, in effect. Like there would be a rumor that swirled, well, this is what you would have to do and that wouldn't pan out. And this is what you would have to do. And, and even to this day, there are people who sort of insist that like you can play the game while saving this character, which is just not the case. Mm-hmm. How self-aware do these different examples, are they, do you think, about uh, you know pessimism and arguing for, for pessimism? You know, beyond yeah. just being, well, that's the, the feel and atmosphere of this particular piece. It, it varies greatly. And, and, and so from the tradition that we're operating from, which is a rhetorical tradition, the, um, the intention of the author is not super important, mm-hmm. uh, when kind of analyzing a text to sort of, to say, what is this text doing? That being said, a lot of the, you know, some of the people that we're looking at are explicitly pessimistic. So H.P. Lovecraft, in his uh, letters and diaries, there's a, a bunch of things that he said that, you know, are pretty explicitly pessimistic. Uh, as I mentioned before, Thomas Ligotti, who's another writer of weird fiction, wrote this nonfiction book, Making the Case for, for Pessimism. So I think they're pretty, pretty on point. <laughs> and the writer of True Detective, I, I, I don't, I wouldn't say that he was kind of making the case for pessimism, but he was certainly influenced by the writing of pessimists 
in an interview he said that he more or less um, took some quotes from Thomas Ligotti's book on pessimism and kind of changed them a bit and gave them to his character Russ Cole to say so definitely influenced heavily by pessimism so what other uh, media examples were you considering uh, for the different chapters and, and decided not to go with. I, I'm wondering what came close but didn't make the cut. Yeah, um, so Ethan, we had talked about music, and so he was kind of interested in the idea of drone metal, which is something that I wasn't super familiar with. Um, but my, my limited understanding of it is that it's music that's sort of designed in large part to not be aesthetically pleasing. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of like painful, weird, or unpleasant to to listen to. Mm -hmm. Um, And another um, example, so that he kind of pushed for that, and I was like, well, I don't know much about music, and it was close, but we we had enough. And an example I kind of pushed for, and yeah, I think Ethan thought this was a little bit ridiculous, was I had talked about putting in the movie Inside Out, which is like a Pixar film, Mm -hmm. you know, like how pessimistic could it be um but I I think that there's some some pessimistic themes in that film like the idea of existing in a body and being ruled by kind of independent emotion is consistent with themes of pessimism that you're sort of a puppet to your biological nature Mm. um so yeah, those are the those are the big two examples that didn't make it in. Um, so how? So I assume you, uh, well, let's say, consumed the various media um, to do your research. But did you also uh, do any interviews, or what? What else did you gather to do your research? Yeah. So the research is a lot of it is just sort of a, a matter of reading the text, and oftentimes reading the text in relation to. Um, theory, right? And so when we talk about Rick and Morty and its kind of unique blend of comedy and tragedy, we're looking at, you know, scholars of tragedy and scholars of comedy. Mm -hmm. Um, Or when we're talking about True Detective, you know, we draw heavily on scholarship around the idea of, like, esoteric or secret hidden meanings in texts. And we sort of argue that they're kind of, like, hidden pessimistic meanings in True Detective. But, you know, beyond that, we draw on a variety of secondary sources, to the, or maybe not even secondary sources. We, we look beyond the text themselves, so, you know, we're referencing the fact that H.P. Lovecraft had pessimistic views in his letters or diaries, or we are, when we talk about Final Fantasy, we're looking at the reactions that players had on message boards and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, I imagine... You were, were you delving into a lot that was new to you as far as understanding how these media are, are created in this fashion? Yeah. I mean, we had sort of an idea, you know, as people who kind of consume the media, we had a sense of, well, we think generally this is what's going on, but certainly the process of writing the book is a really deep dive, in-depth look on each one of these case studies, and so certainly brought a lot to light that we weren't necessarily aware of going in. Now, are you both, have you studied philosophy or rhetoric or what's your academic background? Mm -hmm. 
we're our background we both have degrees in communication um mm-hmm. and i think it's fair to say that our background is rhetoric um although ethan kind of has done a pretty significant amount of work in the field of philosophy as well mm-hmm. um we're both sort of rhetoricians and rhetoric is kind of intertwined deeply with philosophy you know, kind of the original philosophical debate in the Platonic dialogues uh, was between, you know, Plato through the character of Socrates making the case for philosophy against the, the sophists who are arguing for rhetoric. Mm-hmm. So rhetoric has a lot of, I guess, what would be called philosophical implications, um, but not philosophy. Mm-hmm. So what part of the research uh, was most enjoyable for you? I think that the the object that I was maybe least familiar with going in was the short story, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. And I don't know if it was enjoyable per se, but I read that and I just, it was deeply disturbing <laughs> to me. And, uh, and so that, it was just, I don't know, it was just wild. It was, um, that, that, you know, it's a sh- very short story, mm. but for whatever reason, it was, it really made me think and was very unnerving. Mm. And so being able to kind of do a lot of work with that, which is, you know, I know a lot of people have read it, you know, a long time ago, but it was mm. brand new to me in kind of being able to take something that I had just read that deeply affected me and write a chapter on it was great. So as you're, you did your research in writing, was there something uh, that you you discovered that really surprised you? I think that one of the things that was surprising to me was there is a scene in Rick and Morty that kind of depicts this, just, it's hard to even describe, I guess like, it, it, it's takes place during kind of a raucous bar scene where these characters are interacting with aliens and drinking and gambling and having a good time. And then kind of in the middle of this, there's this weird, like, almost sexual assault scene. Mm-hmm. And it's just so strange and out of place. And I remember watching it and, and thinking that this is really uncom- not funny and kind of uncomfortable. And then I found this comment on a Reddit thread, I believe, where Dan Harmon, the creator of the show, sort of comments on it, kind of explains his his justification for including the scene and and the idea of purposely making it unfunny. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I just thought it was weird. You know, it was interesting that I was able to kind of find him commenting on that. Mm -hmm. So mentioning that, did you... um did you find reading public opinion on these various works helped um, inform uh, your writing and research? It, to a varying degree. So we did a lot of analysis of responses to the media in the chapter on True Detectives, because that was a big part of our argument, was that the show was kind of creating unfulfilled desires, Right. And so the idea that this show has a cult following is people trying to kind of solve the mystery. You know, we were 
looking deeply at kind of the reviews that were coming out in major publications like the New York Times or whatever about episodes or the show. Um, and, and so in that chapter, that kind of plays a central place. And, you know, in the other chapters, it, it kind of varies. It depends. Mm-hmm. Was there a particular issue um, that you had a lot of difficulty trying to come to a conclusion on or maybe you still haven't? I, I think that one of the, the central ideas that we kind of talk about when we talk about pessimistic rhetoric or, or popular culture that's pessimistic is to what degree something can stand as an exemplar or can it only be a singular instantiation. And by that, I mean, we make the case that part of what allows pessimistic rhetoric to operate in a world that's overwhelmingly hostile to it, a world that's overwhelmingly optimistic, is that it kind of operates under the radar. And so, you know, this kind of blend of comedy and tragedy and Rick and Morty, if it were to occur in a different show, would it be similarly pessimistic? is an open question. To what degree is that possible is something that we kind of raise but don't have a firm answer to. Mm-hmm. Did you consider any movies as examples? Well, I mean, we, we did <laughs> briefly consider Inside Out. Um, oh, that's right. That's right. You mentioned that. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. But, and beyond that, I don't know. I mean, we had a list, which I don't have at the moment, of um, other other things, but Nothing that has come to mind. You know, we talked about um, a few kind of examples that would be pessimistic, but not exactly the type of pessimism that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So Get Out would be an example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of fits with a different style of philosophical, like a, a different style of pessimism, which is not the one that says no one should be born. Mm-hmm. But um, there is sort of a um, study of, a field of pessimism that would be in line with Get Out. Mm-hmm. I see what you're saying. Um, yeah, for some well, Cronenberg and Lynch movies seem to pop into mind, but they might be more uh, not quite what you're you know what you're saying pessimism where people shouldn't exist at all. Yeah, potentially though. Yeah, Lynch. Yeah, I could see that. Are there any post-apocalyptic movies that, that have that sort of message, or are they all sort of hopeful in the end, do you think, the ones you're familiar with? Yeah, it's tough to say. I mean, I, most... Even things that are very bleak tend to, to have an optimistic um, twist to them um, through, you know, tragedy has that element of catharsis. Mm-hmm. And so even if something is deeply tragic, we can kind of like process it in a way that makes us feel better or is optimistic. And so like even, you know, Oedipus or whatever, you know, the classic tragedy, the argument that scholars of tragedy say is that it's ultimately optimistic. It gives us this catharsis. You know, maybe, maybe the road, I guess Mm. that, that seemed pretty, I mean, because it was just so, the the bleakness and sadness of it was just so routine. You know, it's like we walked and didn't find any food, and we walked and we didn't find. You know, uh, you know. So maybe potentially, although it does have a kind of a happy ending to it. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I I think sort of your 
your initial thought is maybe right that they do tend to have like an element of hope to them. And it makes me think of zombie move, movies too. What's the the famous the old '60s one where, um, like Day of the Dead, the Romero movies, Night yeah. of the Living Dead, yeah. where some of them seem to feel like it doesn't matter. It's it's everything is lost, you know. Mm. Yeah. Was there anything you mentioned? A few things that sort of uh, emotionally moved you. Was there anything else that either positively or, or negatively? Uh, moved you that you came across you mentioned the story um, mm-hmm. anything else out there I mean I was very unhappy with the ending of True Detective <laughs> okay and uh, you know the argument that we made is sort of that's the maybe the point or not necessarily the point but that's what makes it pessimistic is there's sort of a disjunct between the ending and the rest of the series and so the ending is just for those who are deeply invested in kind of the mystery and of the the series, the ending is just an enormous disappointment, and mm. um, that's what we argue kind of makes it pessimistic. Hmm. Interesting. So, what do you hope the book will do? Well, you know, we kind of make the argument that our field, that the traditional tools of persuasion are optimistic. And so this idea that there could be a different way of approaching, you know, using something just so radically different than the tools that are typically done, whether those are kind of speeches or, you know, traditional genres like tragedy and comedy, the idea that you could you could take something so out of the mainstream like philosophical pessimism and it would have its own maybe toolkit that it could draw on we think that's kind of interesting and potentially there may be other sort of way out of the mainstream ideas and they also could kind of benefit or are already using their own unique tool set. Mm-hmm. And what do you think with a book like this, would you imagine influencing uh, creators of, of pop culture or is it more, uh, uh, do you feel like it would, it would influence a more deeper uh, set of thinkers? Uh, you know, who knows? Uh, certainly, aspirationally, <laughs> I'd like to think that uh, a content creator would read this book and come away with some useful ideas um, that they could incorporate into what they're doing, whether that is something that will actually happen. Mm-hmm. Unlikely, perhaps. I don't, I mean, who knows? Probably not. Hmm. Though, you know, it comes to mind, I've interviewed a lot of independent game developers and game designers. Like, there's so many out there, and it's, in a way, it's almost easy to just create whatever your imagination, uh, comes up with. Um, so I, I, I almost imagine if someone cr- could create a, a video game specifically utilizing the ideas you have in this book, that would be kind of fascinating, I think. That would be great. <laughs> if anyone's listening to this, uh, who wants to do that and you need any help, let me know. Yeah. I love, yeah. <laughs> I love video games. Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, I, I think that's been, you know, like Bioshock is an example of a game that took a lot of, you know, philosophical ideas and about both form and content and incorporated them in kind of its critique of the philosophy of objectivism. I've written a little bit about that. So yeah, that's, mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah, cool. Um, What's your next writing project? 
Well, um, I have kind of a, this is like far afield, but I have like a textbook that I'm close to completion on. I have kind of a, a company that's interested in publishing it on research, communication, or otherwise kind of social science research methods. So something just totally different. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, another project that's kind of on the way Marxists use history to kind of make arguments for Marxism. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, where can people find uh, your work or your thoughts in general? I guess the book will, is available, will be available on Amazon and, and other online stores. Yeah, yeah. The book should be available most places. It's coming out with Penn State University Press. And um, as far as the other stuff that I've done, you know, I believe I have like a academia.edu page and a Google Scholar page that kind of like has all my things there. And most of the journal articles that I've written are available freely uh, on my academia.edu page. So if you just search Joe Packer mm-hmm. um, and, you know, weird fiction or whatever, it should, should come up. Okay, so not Joseph Packer, it would be Joe Packer? Uh, a good question. <laughs> I guess people can, can try both. <laughs> yeah. All right, um, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any final thoughts? No, I don't think so, but I appreciate it. This was a fun experience, so thanks for reaching out. Cool, thank you. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to visit chrisalvarez.com or theartofsciencefiction.com for more great interviews, photos, and articles. Your visits help support this podcast. Please remember that my first name, Chris, does not have an H in it. One of the best ways to provide feedback for this podcast is to rate me on iTunes. Please give me a good rating if you liked it, or feel free to give me a bad rating if you didn't. I'll use that feedback to make this a better podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram, under Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Facebook under Chris Alvarez WLC on YouTube under Chris Alvarez WLC and on Twitter under Chris Alvarez WLC. Thanks for listening and keep imagining the future.